Welcome to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, right here on Republic Broadcasting. Of course, I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny, or actually today, rainy climes of western Japan. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in for tonight's broadcast. And tonight is Friday night, so we're going to start dipping into the CorbettReport.com archives to highlight some of my past works on various topics. And tonight's topic... Well, let's go back to earlier in this week. If you were listening in on Monday night's broadcast, of course, you heard us talking to Reverend Clenard Childress Jr. of BlackGenocide.org about the eugenics history of the abortion movement in the United States and some of the, well, uncomfortable truths about the inherent racism of that entire uh, field of, of practice that has unfortunately infested American society to such a great extent now that it seems to be just normal. Well, I want to start going into some more of that eugenics history that we have definitely talked about on this program before, and also I have gone over at great length in my work on CorbettReport.com over the past five years, because when you really start breaking down all of these various systems of control and command and centralization of power that we're looking at here on pretty much a daily basis at Corbett Report Radio, you start to eventually come to the understanding that there is an underlying ideology by which the the ruling class, the powers that shouldn't be, the people at the top of this parasitic system definitely adhere to. And that philosophy, that religion, one could almost say, is without a doubt eugenics. The idea that certain people's genes make them fit to be rulers uh, over people like you and I, the uh, the dysgenic population, the people with those poor genes that keep us poor and uh, literally poor and uh, and and downtrodden. Well, we're downtrodden because we deserve to be. We're struggling to make ends meet because we're just that uh, that that lower class of human beings. Our genes make us that way, or so the eugenicists believe. And unfortunately, this is something that's very very much still going on. We see uh, limited hangout stories coming out in CNN and other establishment media about what happened in the uh, in the United States, for example, back 50, 60, 70 years ago with the forced sterilizations that we now know of as part of America's shameful eugenics past. But we never think about the world's shameful eugenics present, or at least not that often. So let's start tonight by taking a look at an article from whatsupwiththat.com that I think proves proves the point of what we're talking about, that eugenics is still very much with us. It's from March 13th, 2012, and it's under the headline, Climate Craziness of the Week. Eugenics is making a com- comeback with climate-optimized human engineering. It says, quote, Bizarre stuff from the Atlantic, though it seems even Bill McKibben is panning him. And when you can't sell Bill McKibben on crazy, well, you've entered a whole new plane of crazy. Me, I welcome our new smaller climate-optimized green cat-like overlords. And then it quotes from a a recent article from The Atlantic, How Engineering the Human Body Could Combat Climate Change. From drugs to help you avoid eating meat to genetically engineered cat-like eyes to reduce the need for lighting, a wild interview about changes humans could make to themselves to battle climate change. One human engineering strategy you mention is a kind of pharmacologically induced meat intolerance. You suggest that humans could be given meat alongside a medication that triggers extreme nausea, which would then cause a long-lasting aversion to meat-eating. Why is it that you expect this could have such a dramatic impact on climate change? 
There is a widely cited UN Food and Agricultural Organization report that estimates that 18% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions and CO2 equivalents come from livestock farming, which is actually a much higher share than transportation. Etc., etc. The article goes on at some length to expound on the various ways that we have to battle that scourge of the life-giving CO2 by basically tinkering with humanity's genome to engineer us into these sickly, disgusting, literally small, shriveled-up creatures that will be, well, we'll have so much smaller carbon footprints and everything will be better. Well, eugenics by another name would smell as rotten, and that's what we're looking at tonight, folks. We're looking at the eugenics agenda. So stay tuned, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back to start going over the history and the future of eugenics. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. And here we are on this Friday night going into the CorbettReport.com archives to highlight some of my past work on the topic of eugenics, that driving agenda behind so much of the oppression and repression and suppression that we have seen going on in every corner of the world and, of course, in the United States, the occupied states of America. And uh, unfortunately, the eugenics agenda just continues to roll along apace because they've just changed the word and they've uh, taken, really stolen from us the history of that word and what it means and, and what they're really advocating. And of course, they'll always tell us that uh, eugenics means to improve the genome, to make it better. It's not about dysgenics. Dysgenics is what those evil Nazis did when they were trying to kill people to get rid of their genes. That's dysgenics. But we're talking about eugenics, building up the human race into something beautiful and great and small with cat-like eyes and given drugs so that we can avoid eating meat and all of that other climate craziness that the what's up with that article we were looking at before the break points out. And unfortunately, the latest incarnation of eugenics really is the uh, the climate carbon craziness that we've seen infest our uh, our society over the past couple of decades with this absolute craziness about the CO2 and how this is the greatest evil and scourge on the planet and how everything must be geared towards it. Well, it creates a perfect little shell into which the eugenicists can uh, can inject all of their discourse about how humans are a scourge and uh, on this planet and need to die. And unfortunately, that's absolutely no hyperbole. So let's start tonight by going over an article, actually a video that I did uh, a couple of years ago called Carbon Eugenics. And the video, unfortunately, the audio is not really great on this video. So instead of playing the uh, the audio from the video, I'll just read to you the transcript. And the transcript to this video and all my big videos with my big speeches are all available from CorbettReport.com. So always, as always, please just check into the homepage there to get the transcripts for any of my videos that you find to be interesting or important. And this one is called Carbon Eugenics genocide in the name of the environment is still genocide. It's from the 11th of December, 2009. The first person to stand up to any great evil is always the most courageous. To be the first one to call out any great injustice is to invite ridicule, scorn, even persecution. It is difficult to imagine today just how brave were the first slave owners to call for the abolition of slavery, the first men and women to advocate women's suffrage, the first activists to call for the end of apartheid. In the end, their cause is recognized as just, and these brave souls are lauded, often posthumously, as heroes. But in the beginning, no one wants to admit that they are a party 
even unwittingly, to a great evil. The wildest, the wildest injustices can be legitimized simply because they are popular. Today, just such a popular injustice exists. It has been infused into our culture and taken up as a cause. It is fervently believed in and advocated with great passion and force, and to speak out against it is to risk persecution and scorn. But speak out against it we must. The terrible injustice of our age has its roots in a most unlikely place, in the quaint villages and manicured gardens of the 19th century British gentry. Amongst that set lived one Francis Galton, a gentleman scientist who had investigated everything from meteorology to statistics. Shortly after his cousin, Charles Darwin, published his Origin of Species, Galton became fascinated with the idea that the survival of the fittest did not just take place between species, but within them. This idea became a pseudoscience, a study of the presumed racial characteristics of this group or that group, with an aim to explaining why the various peoples of the world occupy the positions they do. In order to confirm their preconceived notions of their own self-worth, Galton and his friends started a new field of inquiry called eugenics. Unsurprisingly, it concluded that the rich and powerful were rich and powerful because they were genetically superior, and it offered a simple solution for improving the lot of humanity. Make sure that the affluent upper classes breed as much as possible, preferably within their own families, in order to preserve their superior stock, and make sure that the lowered classes breed as little as possible. This junk science, pandering as it did to the most rabid, the most racist, the most elitist interests of the money class, became universally accepted in the Western world within a generation. Soon, country after country had implemented laws to allow the government to sterilize those citizens it deemed to be unfit. The true horrors of this strain of thought came to light when the German eugenicists, based at the Rockefeller-funded Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, gave the Nazi regime an ideological excuse to take the idea to its logical conclusion. Many of the Germans who went along with the Holocaust did so because they genuinely believed the scientists who were telling them that the Jews and the gypsies, the communists and the homosexuals, were genetically inferior and needed to be eliminated from the gene pool. After World War II, when the full magnitude of the slaughter that had taken place in the name of eugenics began to become apparent, the eugenicist pseudoscientists scrambled to find a way to re-legitimize their racist and classist drivel. They wrote openly in the journals of their once-esteemed eugenic societies that they would now have to continue their studies and practices in a more covert fashion. Eugenics had to become crypto-eugenics. This was accomplished in a number of ways. The British Eugenics Society, for one, merely changed its name to the Galton Institute. The American Eugenics Society morphed into the Population Council, a group set up by John D. Rockefeller III, where members continued to advocate the same policies for reducing the population of third world countries as they always had, only now they did so in the name of fighting overpopulation rather than fighting bad genes. Julian Huxley, brother of the famous writer, helped organize UNESCO in 1945. In the founding document of UNESCO entitled UNESCO, Its Philosophy and Its Purpose, he argues that one of the key aims of the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization would be the re-legitimization of eugenics, so the idea would once again become thinkable. He also went on to co-found the World Wildlife Fund with Nazi SS officer Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Within a generation, science was once again ready to tell us why the only way to save humanity was to stop people from breeding. 
This time, the public was whipped into a furor not about Jews and gypsies, but about carbon dioxide and environmental sustainability. The cover had changed, but the racist eugenicist text remained the same. In the logic of the eugenicists, the meaning of human life is itself transformed. Instead of something valuable, something precious, something to be desired and nurtured, fought for and celebrated, humanity is reimagined as a cancer, something inherently evil, the mere existence of which is a burden on the world. This, unsurprisingly, encapsulates the modern environmental movement's position almost perfectly. Human life is no longer something to be treasured, but something to be measured in carbon and then reduced. In the man-made global warming myth, humans are merely an obstacle to the proper functioning of nature. In this eugenicist fantasy, the earth is saved when people die. In both ideologies, if they really are separate, the ultimate genocide becomes thinkable. Now, the leaders of the world are meeting in Copenhagen to decide on the future of your world, of my world, of the world of our children and grandchildren. They are proposing a reorganization of the world economy. Punishing austerity is being urged in all corners. Groups of population control eugenicists are now arguing for carbon offsets to be used to stop the developing world from having children. The choir of madness is growing by the day, and everything seems set to reach an intolerable crescendo. And then, in the darkest hour, just as it seems the eugenicists are about to take over, along comes an insider, a hero, at the University of East Anglia, to leak the emails and documents with which the entire man-made global warming myth is exposed and the carbon reduction agenda is delegitimized. It is not always popular to stand against great injustice, but it is always right. Once again, that comes from my video slash article, Carbon Eugenics, Genocide in the Name of the Environment is Still Genocide. That was released in December of 2009, and it, of course, it is available from Car CorbettReport.com. And the link to that will be in the show notes for tonight's episode, CorbettReport.com slash radio. And uh, absolutely, that was, of course, written in response to the Copenhagen Climate Summit that was taking place in, in Copenhagen in 2009. As uh, as the world elite came together to try to really put their uh, the final cherry on top of the icing on their cake of world government, which they've been lusting after for well centuries, really uh, generations, uh, demonstrably, and really it did seem at that time that the world was so much on the brink of these these eugenicist led elite, these these eugenicist inspired fervored, racist, classist uh, elite who believe themselves to be somehow genetically superior to you and I. They were so close to achieving their dream of world government on the brink of that Copenhagen summit, which really did have so much momentum going into it. And it was derailed just in time by by ClimateGate, of course, what we've gone over in this program before. But for those who don't know, the leak of emails and documents from the University of East Anglia that showed all of the backstage, backdoor happenings that were going on in the climate world to try to 
basically pump up and inflate their uh, their argument about the the destruction, the the total complete devastation of the world that's going to take place because of man made CO two yada yada. So really, ClimateGate, I think, truly had such an effect on the the shape and the course of future events. I don't think people will ever really be able to gauge exactly how how much that did derail the process. But there's no doubt that today the uh, the hype over this global warming scare is much much less than it was even just a few short years ago so once again eugenics can take many forms and it can cloak itself under many different ideologies and the modern environmental movement has really uh, abandoned any sense of actually caring about the planet and is really only concerned about limiting mankind's co2 which is just so crazy on so many levels not to mention demonstrably unscientific that it beggars the imagination but there you go and there we are so we will continue unwrapping the layers of this eugenicist shroud and getting to the mummified corpse that lies beneath it and we will continue with that right after this break so stay tuned right there we bombed them all for their prosperity their freedom and democracy when you play the world savior someone might return the favor And, you know, I was actually recently I was watching on Netflix. There was a movie called Zenith. Uh, I think everybody should check it out. Um, basically, it was about how in, in a, a modern society, I think 2020, 2040, um, everyone is genetically engineered to be happy. And what happens is people become numb and, and really kind of in the doldrums. And what they, have, they do is give themselves pain, and the pain is the only way they feel alive. Um, do you think that the... Uh, life extension technologies and uh, you know all the, the nanotechnologies and all these different things that they're doing right now to lengthen people's lives, uh, you know, synthetic biology. Do you think that uh, eventually that these people want to become like God, kind of a a Mormon slash Scientology type philosophy? That's exactly where where this is all going. And again, when you just say that to people, the vast majority of people just don't have the the historical context or, or the the understanding to to see where that's coming from. So again, it, it usually takes a, a lot of background and filling in with the, the the background of this in order to get people to even understand that these types of technologies are coming down the line. But once you get to that point and you start uh, encountering such things as, of course, uh, Aldous Huxley's 1962 speech at Berkeley, the the, the final revolution where he's talking about the types of things that he was writing about in Brave New World and he's saying, well, they're, they're kind of already here and uh, and we're already dealing with them. We can already implant chips in people's brains that can affect their emotions and things like this and and really, I mean, it's it, we're looking at an age where where the dictators of the future will be able to to make their slaves happy to be slaves and, and that's exactly what you're talking about there. And again, this is, this is becoming more and more of a reality as we get into these technologies. So the way I see it is... Um, uh, uh, it's something that recurs uh, a lot in the the types of 
well, fiction that they they like to cloak a lot of their ideas in. So so H.G. Wells, for example, is known as a science fiction author and War of the Worlds and things like that. But a lot of people don't understand that he was actually a key figure in the Fabian Socialist Movement. He was a key eugenicist. He wrote a lot of important documents, including the draft of the U.N. Charter of Human Rights. Uh, a lot of people don't know his, his real background and what an important political player he was. But of course, uh, embedded in some of his works were, were some very interesting things, including in the Time Machine, where he wrote about the Morlocks and the Eloys. Basically, in the future, the human race splits into two, and there's the ape-like beings that live underground and do all the work, and then there's the uh, the perfect golden Aryan race that lives over above ground, basically. And uh, and uh, and and that's not that's I mean that's that's truly a vision of the future that that pops up again and again, and it's something that I cite a lot. I should really find this this article but uh, back in 2007 there was an article on bbc news of all places talking about how scientists were talking about how the the human race was going to start I diverging into two. yes absolutely they had pictures of these you know ape-like beings and these you know alien-like beings that that were going to devolve evolve and devolve into and and i think that's really the vision of the future as we have it today because we have these the promise of these these life extension technologies manipulating our our genome and manipulating our our or merging with machines in all sorts of different ways as, as brain chips and all sorts of things become possible. But of course that technology will only be implemented in, in ways that, that, in the same way that, that things are distributed in, in our current economy. So we have the haves and haves not have nots. We're, we're soon going to have that at a genetic level. We're going to have that in terms of intelligence when we, we start interfacing with the machines more to the point where there will be a certain crop of, of of people who have you know the special uh, access to this technology who will be so far advanced from the rest of us that they will start to become a different species in you know in in all in every respect and and again that's just you're absolutely right i was uh talking to charles osman uh, a really great guy who works for nasa also worked for darp as well he said that yeah there'll be haves and there'll be have nots and uh, you know that some people will be smarter in school because of of the technology and some won't uh, what do you think about uh, the most recent uh, uh, talk about uh, people in the military actually merging with their weapons to their minds? Well, I, I don't know specifically what uh, what story you're talking about, but I've certainly seen my share of stories over the past several years that I've been looking at this of all the different ways that they want to engineer the perfect soldiers. So we've seen all sorts of proposals for basically uh, mind-controlling drugs that will be able to keep soldiers going for uh, long periods of time without sleep or food and all of these types of things. And uh, and again, it sounds like science fiction, but it's getting closer and closer to reality with each passing day. And 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 again, that to me is the fundamental point of this, because there are the the H plus the World Transhumanist Association that all of these people who say that this is going to be some perfect utopia where, of course, all of humanity will be great because of all of these upgrades that we'll be able to have and will be even better than humanity. We'll will all be living as as these godlike creatures. But of course, it will it will start to f- filter out through the the military first. Of all, as always happens with new technologies, the military always has it first, and uh, it's developed with public funds and used for uh, the, that imperial takeover of the world. And uh, we see that again with the development of the drone technologies, which is getting more and more creepy by the day. If you've seen some of the latest drone technologies that they're showing to the public, and um, 
And it, again, it starts out with there and it'll filter down to the very, very rich people. But uh, but again, it really does create the question once these technologies start having the effects that we know that are they're capable of. Once then nanotechnology starts engineering people down at the, the microscopic level, uh, it's absolutely unthinkable the difference between these types of enhanced people and the regular people like you and me. And you can bet that uh, that Bill Gates and uh, and uh, Ted Turner and all these people who talk constantly about the problem of overpopulation probably aren't concerned about the uh, the plight of the average person in India or in Africa uh, who are starving to death and just trying to skate, scrape by on a dollar a day. I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that the, this type of technology is never going to filter down to that I, I- level. Welcome back, friends. We're here on Corbett Report Radio tonight, going through the CorbettReport.com archives for some of my previous work on the eugenics agenda that's behind the real plan of these crazy inbred psychopathic elite who believe themselves to be genetically superior to you and I and thus born to be rulers of this planet. Once again, it sounds crazy, as does the technology that I was talking about before the break uh, in an interview that, again, can be found on CorbettReport.com that Michael Vale of StratRisks.com conducted with me earlier this year. And uh, we were talking about some of the technologies and things that are coming down the line that will really split the human race into two. And that's, again, that's just absolutely not uh, hyperbole. This is not the stuff of science fiction fantasy. We are in the 21st century. We are in Buck Rogersville. And uh, yet more examples of that, if you need any more. It's coming out on a daily basis now, but there's an interesting article from Reuters that came out earlier this month, Superhuman Brain Technology Sparks Ethics Debate, in which our old friends, the bioethicists, are sparking the debate just like they did about killing newborns that we mentioned uh, in earlier this week with our conversation on the black genocide. Well, now they're talking about thought-controlled weaponry and other upgrades to the human brain that will soon be possible with technology and and, well, it will mean that certain people will basically be godlike compared to the average person like you and me without these upgrades. So so what does this mean for the future of humanity? Blah, blah, blah. I'm sure they're going to spin it off as well, you know, e- either by saying it's good or by saying, well, we can't really predict, but it's going to happen anyway, so just live with it. And the bioethicists, of course, if not eugenicists themselves, are very much in the back pocket of the eugenicists. So no surprise there. But in order to better understand all of this eugenics agenda, I think it is absolutely crucial crucial that we understand the history of where it came from and what the people propagating it themselves actually say and write and think about when it comes to eugenics. And that's increasingly hard to do in this day and age. As as we've talked about, they've tried to cloak their eugenics ideology behind environmentalism or the overpopulation scare or whatever scare they'll come up with next to try to make us think that humanity itself is a problem. And so we can basically accept getting sterilized and killed off ourselves while they, of course, the people who are pulling the strings continue to have large families and uh, own vast tracts of land and eat organic foods and have the Svalbard seed vault so they can store away their non-GMO seeds for when all of us become poisoned by the crap that they're feeding us. 
But uh, to better understand that, let's take a listen to a somewhat older episode of my podcast. Episode 74 was released back in February of 2009, and it's about the Inbred Elite's Million Year Plan. And in this episode, I think it's an important one. Uh, I, I hope people will go and listen to the entire episode. Uh, it, it goes through the, the Million Year Plan, the, the idea of uh, uh, directing the human species and, and the ways that technology will be used to, to direct evolution in ways that it, naturally it would take a million years for humanity to change in some fundamental way but with technology we can do it in decades and that really is the plan behind this and uh, the people behind the plan are people like Charles Darwin and Francis Galton and Charles Galton Darwin and all of the other people of the incestuous inbred Galton Darwin Huxley Wedgwood family line which we've talked about at some on this broadcast before and in some of my other works I suggest you look into it because it really is where all of this really starts to originate as a scientific concept, quote-unquote, really pseudoscience garbage, but uh, who's going to call out the emperor on having new clothes? And in this episode of the, broadca- the podcast, I was talking about uh, that line and how it developed into Charles Galton Darwin's book, The Next Million Years, which is an ambitious title for a book, but he was quite deadly serious, and unfortunately... Absolutely. Their their long-term plan, the eugenicists' ultimate dream is to tinker with the human genome and to really direct society at the genomic level. It is absolute Buck Rogers stuff, but it is happening. So let's start getting into that history. But for those who are looking for more information on this extremely bizarre facet of Darwin's personal life... You could always turn to a article that appeared in the November 2005 volume of Natural History entitled Good Breeding. Darwin doubted his own family's fitness. Quote, brought up in a provincial market town, Charles Darwin lived for 40 years in rural Kent, where he raised a large family. The English countryside was his natural habitat, a world of gentlemen farmers devoted to breeding livestock, flowers, fruit, and people. His paternal grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a noted horticulturalist, and his maternal grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood I, who raised sheep, improved the flocks with hundreds of merinos. It is a beautiful part of my theory, Charles jotted when developing his ideas on evolution, that domesticated races are made by precisely the same means as species. Breeders decided which animals mate and which offspring survive. This was artificial selection. Nature, in Darwin's view, did the same thing through the struggle for existence. He called it natural selection. Ironically, some of the problems caused by inbreeding, which Darwin had heard about from farmers, threatened to play out in his own family. In 1839, as he turned 30, did Charles select well in choosing a mate? His betrothed, Emma Wedgwood, was his first cousin. The Darwin and Wedgwood families had intermarried for some time. I call them the Darwoods for short. Charles's grandfather, Josiah, had eight children with his third cousin, Sarah. Their eldest daughter, Susanna, married Robert Darwin, a noted physician. Charles was the fifth of Robert and Susanna's six children. Josiah and Sarah's second eldest son, Josiah II, fathered nine children, four of whom, Emma Wedgwood Darwin among them, married first cousins. From our vantage point long after Darwin's death, the results of this unintended experiment in close cousin breeding are striking. Twenty-six children were born from these first cousin marriages, yet nineteen of the offspring did not reproduce. Five died prematurely, 
five were unmarried and considered somehow deficient, and nine married without issue. Indeed, among the 62 aunts, uncles, and cousins in the four generations founded by Josiah I and Sarah Wedgwood, 38 remained childless, just as Britain's population was booming, the fertility of Darwin's and Wedgwood's seemed to be falling. When Charles's mixed Darwood blood was added to Emma's pure Wedgwood, how would their children turn out? Darwin observed them tenderly, but with a breeder's eye, starting with Willie, my little animalcule of a son, and his first daughter, Annie. A third child, Mary, died shortly after her birth, but other healthy babies followed. Henrietta, George, Elizabeth, Francis, and Leonard. Then the eldest girl, Annie, fell ill in 1850. She died a year later, soon after her 10th birthday. Another son, Horace, was born in 1851. Darwin was devastated by Annie's death, fearing she had inherited the wretched illness that had plagued him since the Beagle voyage. Historians now think Annie died of tuberculosis while Darwin was infected by a blood parasite he had acquired in the tropics. As the other children reached the age at which Annie had become sick, he watched them anxiously. My dread is hereditary ill health, he confided in a letter. Even death is better for them. He found what he feared. Elizabeth shivers and makes extraordinary grimaces. At age ten, she developed a weak, irregular pulse. Henrietta had similar symptoms at age thirteen and took to her bed for years. George's irregular pulse at age eight pointed to some deep flaw in his constitution, his father assumed, and he spotted the same symptom at the same age in Leonard. As the children failed, or appeared to fail, one after another, Darwin began experimenting with pigeons. He bought fancy varieties and worked out their family tree. He observed the checks to determine the age at which slight differences appear that breeders could select or nature could exploit. Those variations, as Darwin wrote in The Origin of Species, usually arose at a corresponding age in the offspring and parent, but he knew of cases in which flaws appeared at an earlier age in the child. The evidence of the latter lived at home. His own condition had set in at about age 30, the children's as adolescence approached, seemingly like clockwork. In 1856, the Darwin's tenth and final child arrived with its full share of intelligence— Baby Charles never began to talk. He shivered and grimaced and died within two years. But the evidence that the family was blighted already seemed abundantly clear. In 1862, when Horace broke down at age 11 with shuddering and gasping and hysterical sobbing, his father felt he knew the cause. It was a serious form of inheritance from my poor constitution. Now, to clinch the diagnosis... All he needed was quantitative proof that inbreeding was bad, evidence from more than his own ten offspring. End quote. Somehow, I bet you'll never read about that in BBC News articles about our hero Charles Darwin, just as you'll never read, for instance, in a biography of Newton, how Newton was absolutely obsessed with alchemy and devoted the vast majority of his entire scientific career to the f discovery of how to turn base metals into gold, and some of the bizarre notebooks that he kept in that pursuit. I'll leave you to look into that for yourself, and I'll give you some links in the documentation section for today's episode if you're interested. But suffice it to say, there is usually more to the story than meets the eye, and certainly this is one such case. So where do we go from here? How do we follow this line of thought into our present day? 
Well, let's follow the line in a quite straightforward sense, from the grandfather to the grandson. One of the fruits, you could say, of the grand Darwin-Wedgwood-Galton inbreeding experiment, to Charles Darwin's grandson, Charles Galton Darwin. For a brief introduction to Charles Galton Darwin, I turn to KnowledgeDrivenRevolution.com, which in March of last year ran a five-part article series. Examining one of Charles Galton Darwin's works, from that article, quote, "Is it possible to domesticate humanity as a whole? Would we need a wild master race to watch over us?" Charles Galton Darwin, in his 1952 book *The Next Million Years*, attempts to answer these questions. In this book, C. G. Darwin attempts to give a general outline of the future history of mankind. He was an English physicist and grandson of Charles Darwin of evolutionary fame. Despite being concerned about the overpopulation of the world, he had four sons and one daughter with his wife Catherine Pember. The hypocrisy of this may seem odd, but the concern about overpopulation only refers to inferior breeds of humans and not superior breeds like himself and his lineage. C.G. Darwin was a longtime member and eventual president of the Eugenics Society from 1953 to 1959, which represented the belief system held among many of the political, scientific, and aristocratic elites of his day and the present. End quote. Now I'll put a link up in the documentation section for today's episode to the entire five-part. Knowledge Driven Revolution article, and I do suggest that you read it in its entirety. But right now, let's turn to part two of that five-part article called "Can Mankind Be Domesticated," which contains the following quotes from Charles Galton Darwin's 1952 book, "The Next Million Years." Quote: The only imaginable way of overcoming these difficulties would be to set up a class of consultants. Who would prescribe what marriages were eugenically admissible and how large the consequent families should be? But this does not solve the difficulty; it only pushes it back a stage, for it leaves unanswered the question: Who are to be the consultants, and what principles are to guide them in settling the values of the different qualities of mankind? It comes back to just the difficulty I described in my fable: that a tame animal must have a master. And that, therefore, though it might conceivably be possible to tame the majority of mankind, this could only be done by leaving untamed a minority of the population. Moreover, this minority would have to be the group possessing the most superior qualities of all. End quote. Continuing, quote, why cannot man set up a community like an ant's nest? This would be the ideal of the anarchist. And hitherto, it has held no promise at all of success. But with the help of recent and probable future biological discoveries, some sort of imitation by man of the ant's nest cannot be quite excluded from consideration. Thus, the control of the numbers of the two sexes may become possible, and with the knowledge of the various sexual hormones, it might also become possible to free the majority of mankind from the urgency of sexual impulse. So that they could live contented celibate lives instead of the unsatisfied celibate lives that are the compulsory lot of such a large fraction of the present population of the world. If these discoveries should be made, and this is really by no means impossible, 
Man should be able to carry out the sex revolution, which is the typical characteristic of the insect civilizations. The detail would, of course, have to be quite different, for instead of one queen, there would have to be large numbers of fertile women to renew the population. Whereas there might be one king, literally the father of his country. End quote. And reading now from part four of the five-part series from KnowledgeDrivenRevolution.com and continuing with quotations from The Next Millionaires by Charles Galton Darwin, quote, Medical science might succeed in materially lengthening life without senility, though in a world of overcrowded population, it is not very clear what would be gained. Looking a little deeper there is the possibility of substantially altering the intellectual and moral natures of individuals by some sort of hormonal injections. Already great effects have been produced in animals. Finally, as the most curious speculation of all, it is not quite impossible that it may one day be feasible to select in advance the sex of each child that is to be born. Whether this decision is made by the parents or by their rulers... This suggests that probability of a great unbalance in the population of the world. End quote. Once again, I could not suggest strongly enough that my listeners at the very least take a look at that five-part article series on KnowledgeDrivenRevolution.com and preferably actually go and read The Next Million Years for themselves. But really now, let's get serious. Of course, maybe some people who were a bit deluded had these ideas at one time, talking about controlling the population by means of hormonal injections and the like, engineering society on a mass scale through the implementation of scientific programs designed to control and manipulate the percentage of males and females being born in society to make us more pliant and pliable to the technocratic elite who are ruling over us. I mean, let's be serious. This can't actually be happening, can it? Sounds like a B-movie. Millions of males vanish. Fact is, there aren't as many nowadays. Not human males, not frogs, not fish. Chemicals are moving us into period of the most rapid evolution of the, that this species has ever experienced. From toys to shampoo, we're awash in strange new compounds, and we're only just learning that males are being hit hardest. The scientists within Health Canada are telling the government, listen, you really have to move on this. I'm Anne-Marie MacDonald. This Zone asks, where have all the boys gone? Oh yes, folks, it is happening. The agenda is unfolding before us, even as we speak, and they are moving ahead with their plans. It involves the killing off of the vast majority of the human species in order to allow those elites to propagate into the future. It's the most serious information we could be dealing with, and we will be back to wrap up tonight's episode of the broadcast right after this. Closing minutes of tonight's episode of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. So thank you for tuning in for tonight's episode as we've been looking at the eugenics agenda. 
and the people who are behind it. And unfortunately, it's really the same characters that perpetuate down throughout the ages. Before the break there, we were looking a little bit into the Darwin line, the uh, the family tree that tends to go in more than it branches out when you start to look at the the so-called elite, the would-be elite, the people who shouldn't be the elite, the, uh, the people who are pulling the strings, who are obsessed with inbreeding and keeping their genes in a family line that goes... Uh, that goes straight and branches in, doesn't branch out. And why is that? Well, they, they truly do believe in this. They truly do believe themselves to be the rulers of the world. And until you start looking at the history of this idea of eugenics and where it came from and, and how it was promoted to the public and what it has resulted from it, until you really start to look at that history, you can't see it for yourself. It's like the Matrix. You can't be shown the Matrix. You have to see it for yourself. So once again, I implore you, I beg you, Please start using some of the resources that I've uh, pointed out here uh, that, that are good places to go for documentation about eugenics or, or just look it up yourself. Don't trust me. Don't take my word for anything. Go look it up for yourself. But I guarantee you when you start looking into this, you will start to see the bigger, bigger game plan coming into view. And it is, it is a frightening one, friends. We have to be fighting the eugenics agenda in every front and in every place where it pops up because uh, it's absolutely the stake and the survival of the human species is what that play and that's not hyperbole now that we're talking about this buck rogers science fiction nightmare technology that's coming down the line and of course they always want to sell it well it could be the most hopeful wonderful technology we could live forever and we could be these super beings with, with brain chips and all of this great stuff that's going to make everything great and they're going to sell it to us that way and it's going to look so great and feel so good and be so sexy and it's going to be sold to us like an apple iphone or whatever it's going to be the slickest thing you've ever seen and oh it's so so great and fun to use but it's uh, it's just getting us inserted further and further into that matrix by which they will ensnare us completely so we have to be aware of this agenda and we have to be fighting it once again please use corbettreport.com it is a resource there are thousands of hours of media there available for free download and uh, links of course always documentation links to everything that I talk about all these articles and everything that I'm uh, doing I always try to put the links there so that you can follow them and of course everything I've cited in tonight's episode of the broadcast will be be available from corbettreport.com slash radio. So once again, it is a resource. Please use it as such. And uh, once again, I'm not saying that anyone should follow me as some kind of leader. I, I'm not looking for messiahs. I'm not asking you to look for messiahs. I'm just asking you to, to look at the information for yourself and start putting the uh, pieces together for yourself because I'm confident that once you do, you will start to see the bigger picture emerging. And on that note, if you do find this information useful, if the Corbett Report is a resource that you, uh, that you can rely on or that you have relied on, that you find that uh, can help you to spread the word about this information. I do ask for your support. This broadcast and all of the work that I'm doing is brought to you by you. So once again, thank you so much to all the people who've signed up to be subscribers, donating as little as 100 Japanese yen a month. It's about a buck 50 a month, actually less than that. And that truly does mean a lot to me um, for, with all of you out there doing that. It really does help for me to keep doing this work. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's work that, well, it just never ceases as the eugenics, the eugenics agenda continues to roll along. So your support in helping to unravel this uh, cobweb of information is always appreciated. And on that note, I will leave it there and once again ask you to join me on this broadcast next week, another interesting week of guests and uh, topics lined up for you. So until then, thank you so much for tuning in and take care.